if you build it, he will come. Kevin Costner heard these words while on his Iowa farm. He took them as mandate. Went on to build the field of dreams. Upon that field, shoeless Joe Jackson and the rest of his teammates and the 1919 White Sox came and played a game. If you build it, he will come. It was his mandate to start an unusual construction project. Solomon is not Kevin Costner, but he does have a mandate from God to build it, the temple. And God has promised to indwell that temple as long as Solomon walks according to his word. We're in 1 Kings this morning, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we are going to go on a tour of God's house, the house that Solomon is building for him. What I think the main idea of this passage is, is this, that God's house speaks about God's glory. God's house speaks about God's glory. And I, I want to encourage you this morning to star in your role and stand in awe. You have your outline there before you. And we have to admit, this is like a five-star insert, right? I've got all those pictures there to help you along this morning, front and back. Uh, and so it's going to make up if it's a two-star sermon. It was because all the effort went into that wonderful insert. Uh, for real, though, you can consult the insert as we work through some of these details and talk about the text this morning. My hope is that it'll, it'll serve you well. With that in mind, let's pray, and we will get started this morning. Father, we thank you for your kind providence to us. We thank you for gathering this people together in this place at this time so that we might worship you together with one voice and one heart. We, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would give us all listening hearts, that we would grow in wisdom and in stature as the consequence of interacting with one another and submitting ourselves to your word. Pray that you would send your spirit to us now. Fill us up with your grace and your mercy and your love. Pray that you would help us to see your glory through the details of a text that may seem to us like drudgery. Show us once more this morning that all of your word is living and active. All of your word is useful for training us up in righteousness and equipping us for every good work. Pray that you would help us to focus. Thank you for this time. What a privilege it is to hear you speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed Solomon king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, 
You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father. Your son whom, you, whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. Now therefore, command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My servants will join your servants. And I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Our chapter opens with Hiram sending people to Solomon to tell him congratulations on taking the throne of your father. Hiram apparently had a previous relationship with David that was a good one. He, he loved David, the text tells us. And Solomon assumes that Hiram is familiar with this promise that God had made to his father. He tells him, you recall this word that my father wanted to build God a house, but because of the warfare around him was prevented from doing so. And you also recall that he told my father he would have a son to sit his throne who would build his house. I'm a son. I'm sitting my father's throne. I have peace on all sides. There are no adversaries. There's no trouble. You know, chapter 4, verse 20 tells us that Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. They ate and they drank and they were happy. Got people sitting under their fig trees and vines. Solomon says, it seems to me like the perfect time to build God's house. Does recall that promise in 2 Samuel 7? I just always love David. It's like, God, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to build you a house, meaning a dynasty. And as God has built David's house and given him that first son to sit the throne, it's now time for Solomon to build God's house. He and Hiram do some negotiating, but the end of the matter is plain in verse 17. At the king's command, they quarried, that's excavated, unearthed, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gabel did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. Step one of this project is getting together all the material and manpower that is necessary to, to actually erect such a temple. And so Solomon has, has gathered cedars from Lebanon, and he's going to send some of his guys, and Hiram's going to take some of his guys, and together they're going to work to the end of getting this material so that God's house can begin to be built. What I want to, to point your attention to, though, is this. You see, God's providence propels Solomon into action. Solomon recognizes God's promise, and it's God's promise that motivates Solomon's faithfulness in building the temple. This is really neat. One commentator says, Kingdom promises encourage kingdom work. 
in another. The fact that God keeps His promise is the ultimate motivation for perseverance in serving Jesus. The basic principle here is that hope is the engine that drives discipleship. For us, this means that if we, we are looking for motivation to live life's lives of faithfulness unto the Lord, we need to look no further than those promises that are made to us in the gospel. Jesus has promised that he has the power to forgive our sins because of his death on the cross in the place of all who believe. He's promised us that he has secured for us that salvation by way of his resurrection. He has promised us, as he has ascended to his throne in heaven, that indeed he rules over all things and he will return to rule fully and finally over a new heaven and a new earth. And so these promises are what motivate us to continue to persevere in the faith. So as we wait for the Lord's return, we don't just sit and do nothing. Christian waiting is active waiting. We do things for the Lord. We obey His commands. We walk according to His Word in light of the promises He's made to us. God keeps His promises and can be trusted. And that motivates us to live faithfully wherever God has placed us, in whatever situation we find ourselves in. We can live faithfully because we know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. I think what that means practically for us is that recognizing that God has put us where we are recognizing God's promises enables us to live faithfully and to embrace the role that we've been cast in. Right? So Solomon and Hiram here help us to see something. Right? Solomon tells him, look, David wanted to build this house, but that wasn't God's plan for David. David didn't get to build the house anyway. God had decided that Solomon would build the Lord's house. And Solomon didn't get to be the, the king of war like David was. He built the house of God. Hiram, well, he got to supply cedars to the house of the Lord. And we'll meet another Hiram later in our text today, a son of a widow who is skillful and full of wisdom for crafting things. His role was to make beautiful things for the temple. Each of these people contribute to the whole as it relates to the construction of the tabernacle. And likewise, friends, as we go about that business of building up the church and fulfilling the Great Commission, we all have different roles. There's a, a saying around the NBA uh, that I love, and I don't expect many of you watch the NBA, uh, but, but one of them is star in your role. And the point is, is that each team has a number of players, and each of those players has a responsibility. And if they devote themselves to being great at what they are supposed to do, it will help the whole team succeed. And that's 
juxtaposed to, you know, sitting around as an NBA player going, you know, I should be taking most of the shots, right? I think likewise, in Christianity, we are tempted to look at the positions and gifts and roles of others and be envious. I think what this text teaches and what 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us is that God has called us and equipped us to live lives faithfully in the places that he has put us. God has made you and put you where you are specifically. You aren't you don't live in the house you live in by chance. You don't have the relationships you have by coincidence. God has put you there. And you should live faithfully where He's planted you. Star in your role. Solomon's role is to build a house for the Lord. And he stars in it. He gathers material and manpower and then commits to breaking ground. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 6. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. This is a significant transition point in the life of the people. That mention of Egypt is to conjure up in our mind that the era of the Exodus is coming to an end. God has saved the people out of Egypt and now he is going to settle them in the land. And his settling of them in the land is marked by the building of his palace. This is an answer to promises made to his people long ago. It's been 400 plus years since they came out of Egypt. That's a long time to wait on God to fulfill his promises, don't you think? And yet God doesn't operate with a shot clock or a play clock. He doesn't have a deadline. But he's always faithful to keep his word. I think this is a lesson for us when we feel as if God is slow to answer our prayers or to keep his promises, that he's good for it. If God says something, you can take it to the bank. So we kind of hear the, the melody of one of the songs that play in this chapter, God keeps his promises. We can trust him to do what he's said, even if it's taking him a while. I tried to impress this upon Elliot this morning. We've gone to the dentist this week. And they give you like a little treat bag at the dentist we go to. It's a whole train theme. You get, a, you get a train ticket and they send you home with like a toothbrush and a little timer. So for like the rest of the week, four or five days, he's asked me, I want this plastic timer to brush my teeth and it's, it's in your truck. Will you bring it to me? And I've told him, yeah, sure. I'm going to get it. And this morning he said, you kept telling me that you're going to get this timer and I, I need it and it's not here. And I said to him, buddy, you can trust my word. I'm going to get you the timer. I promise. But it's not going to be right now. And I am. I'm going to get to it. See, God is our good heavenly Father. And when He says He's going to do something, He does it. 
even if it feels like it's taking a while. Here he's finally fulfilling his promise to settle the people in the land and for his house to be built. And it is quite spectacular. Listen to some of these dimensions. Right, God's house is 90 feet long. That's the distance from home plate to first base, baseball fans. It's 30 feet wide. That's the distance of a first down in football. And it's 45 feet tall. That's four stories high, or four and a half basketball hoops. It's going to have new windows with recessed frames. It's going to have, the last one, remember in the tabernacle, that's where God's presence dwells now, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's got two rooms. It's got the front room and the back room. God dwells in the back room. This is going to have extra chambers and new rooms on it. It's going to be built with costly stones. You see this in verse 7? When the house was built, It was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. It was a sign of reverence before God. This house is being built. We learn that it has ceilings and walls of cedar and the floors are made of cypress. It is a beautiful home. And our literary tour of the place is just getting started, and we come to this first of two interruptions in the text. Interruptions signal importance. With this one, it's God speaking. Verse 11, chapter 6. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, if you, singular, will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all of my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you. God's word is the ultimate expression of his presence. When God is there, he speaks. I will establish my word with you which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. Interruptions signal priorities. I have this wonderful feature on my phone called Do Not Disturb. Some of you are probably familiar with it. So if I click a little button, a little moon comes up on my phone, and then no text messages, no phone calls, no emails. You know, blessed peace is mine. It's like hanging the, the little do not disturb sign on, the, on your door, and then nobody comes knocking or, or flooding in. There is, however, uh, another feature on my phone called emergency bypass. And I can assign this esteemed position to any contact I choose. And what happens if somebody has the designation of an emergency bypass contact is that even if I have my little moon up, my little do not disturb sign, it gives them the right to intrude into my life. Like one of my children in the middle of the night coming into my bedroom can mess up my whole vibe. These people, even when I don't want to be interrupted, can interrupt me. 
Chelsea's the only one with this status, by the way. So if you're wondering, I called and he said he didn't hear it. And it's because of her priority in my life. She is allowed to interrupt me. A similar thing going on here. You see, the purpose of God's interruption of our temple tour is for him to speak to Solomon and say this, if you do not keep me as your priority, the temple will be nothing more than an empty building. This building is great. It's going to declare my glory to the nations. It's going to be a miniature Eden where I meet with my people and enjoy relationship. But if you don't obey my word, it doesn't matter. If you don't obey my word, you won't have my word. If you don't obey my word, I won't dwell with you. And if you do, I will establish my word. I will live among my people. It is so, so interesting that this condition is given to Solomon specifically. A lot of weight on the king's shoulders. If Solomon obeys, then God will dwell with all the people. That's, that's a big responsibility. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. We've seen the impact of the one upon the many throughout history, have we not? We can think of Augustine, and Luther, and Calvin, George Washington, and Churchill. All of these men affected so many thousands of people. We can think of less happy characters in history. Think of Nero, and Mao, and Hitler. One affects the many. Well, we can even see it today with Putin's war in Ukraine. One man's righteousness or unrighteousness can impact thousands. Solomon's faithfulness to God is going to impact the entire kingdom. Now, none of us are, are kings or queens, at least if you are, I don't know it. But we are all in relationship with other people. Some of us have other people under our authority. And how we live our lives, in obedience to God's word, or in wickedness, is, is going to either bless those who are around us, or bring to them curse. This is why uh, the pastor, Robert Murray McShane, used to say, my people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. I think that's true as a, as a pastor, that the greatest need of a congregation is my own personal holiness. But I don't think it just applies to pastors. Fathers, the greatest need of your families is your own personal holiness. Husbands, the greatest need of your family, of your wife, is your own personal holiness. 
wives and mothers, the greatest need of your husband and of your children is your own holiness. Children, the greatest need of your siblings and of your parents and of your peers is your own holiness. Church, what your friends and family and community need from you is your holiness. We are to be holy as God is holy. Let us strive to be holy. That is what we have been declared in Christ. Holy. Still, this is a lot on anyone's shoulders. We want to recognize that we can positively impact those under our authority or around us. Such was the case for Solomon. And like many of us, Solomon failed to walk in the statutes of God and obey his commands perfectly. In fact, we know that Solomon turns his heart away from the Lord. This is why even when we, we look at one of Israel's mightiest of kings, it turns our attention to the king of kings and to the cross. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to know that we Christians come here not because we've kept the law of God perfectly. Not because we're really good people and we've lived really good lives. We Christians come here week after week to worship God through song and prayer and the preaching of long sermons. We come because we recognize that we are sinners and that apart from Christ, our sins have earned for us eternal condemnation in hell under God's wrath. That would be right. We come because God the Son took on flesh, never ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. Jesus came and he died a brutal death on the old rugged cross. He spilled out his blood for sinners like you and like me, for, for all who will call out to him in faith. He shed his blood so that we might be washed in it and made clean, forgiven of all of our sins. He's risen from the dead, promising to all who have faith that we, like him, shall rise and live. Non-Christian, you don't have to have your act together to come to Jesus. Your life is a mess, and your family is a mess, and you've got sin that just marks your day to day. Let me tell you, you finally have come to the right place. Jesus doesn't snuff out smoldering wicks, he doesn't break bruised reeds. Come to him with your sin and your weakness and be saved. Be forgiven. 
You see, he is the, the one king who kept God's commands perfect. And he has made for us a new covenant so that through him we can enjoy God's word and God's presence. Jesus is the word made flesh. Indeed, Jesus lives among us in his people. God interrupts our literary tour to remind us of what our priorities ought to be, to remind Solomon of what his priorities ought to be. It is an encouragement to walk in faithfulness, and it is a warning of what will befall Solomon if he does not. But interruption aside, we come to the next stop on our tour, and we look at some interior design. Look at me at verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar from the floor to the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood. And he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. Verse 18, the cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Verse 22, and he overlaid the whole house with gold. And so all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. There's no wallpaper for God. He prefers intricate carvings of gourds and open flowers. When he goes to Benjamin Moore or some such place to pick out a paint color, he says, none of this will do. And instead he says, let's use the world's most precious metal. Let's paint the walls with gold. Let's paint the ceiling with gold. Let's paint the floor with gold. Is that pretty good on that front picture in your insert? Everything is golden inside because it's been painted with gold. What else is in there? Well, in the inner room, there's also two 15-foot-tall and 15-foot-wide cherubim made of olive wood. You can see that in verse 23. That's a basketball hoop and a half tall and wide. And they sit in this inner sanctuary, this back room, the throne room where, where God's footstool is, it's where his presence is most locally manifested, and they have one wing touches one wall. Remember, it's only a first down wide. One wing touches one wall. The other wing touches, well, the wing of the second cherubim, and then that other wing touches the wall. So from wall to wall, you have the wings of the cherubim spread. These cherubim are intricately carved, and they are, guess what? They're painted with gold. There is this emphasis on gold throughout the chapter. If you read through it later this afternoon, you'll come across the word over and over again. Gold, gold, gold. And it's because the only thing that can get close to properly expressing the worth of God is the earth's most precious metal. 
along with the most skillful of designs. In verse 29, we also learn that that all of the walls are covered with cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. There are folding doors that separate the main hall or the nave in your ESV. I was like, what's a nave? Main hall, right? That big hall, that front room. Uh, There are doors that separate that front room from the back room, that separate the main hall from God's throne room. And there are also doors that separate the porch from entering into the main hall. These doors, both sets of doors, are intricately carved with cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. They're also coated in gold. I think just one color, God, I don't know that that's very, you know, is it fashionable the right word? One color tells of God's greatness and of God's glory. But that then brings us to interruption number two. And, and, and I'm going to read verse 38 of chapter 6 so that you can see it right next to the first part of chapter 7. Verse 38, chapter 6. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. Solomon was seven years in building it. The very next words in Hebrew are his own house, but let me read them to you from the ESV. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. This is a shift, right? And if, if it was just end of temple, Solomon's house, on to the next thing, I don't know that there would be much here. But you'll recognize that we, we cut back to the temple, to our literary tour, in verse 13. So what's happened here is the details of the temple have been interrupted by these 12 verses about Solomon's house. Now, now some commentators say there's nothing to this insertion. Yes, it's sandwiched in here, but there's not really anything to it. It's just to show us how blessed Solomon was, how great his kingdom is. It's just to tell us about his royal complex. Solomon, like a good son, builds his house right next to his father's house. I think that approach forces rose-colored glasses onto the reader and refuses to see that even though he's Solomon the Wise, even though he's Solomon Holmes unraveling riddles brought to him by prostitutes, he is still Solomon the Gray. Remember back in chapter 3 we said that the author was going to masterfully spread these ominous seeds of disaster throughout our text. They would germinate and come into full bloom in chapter 11 when Solomon turns away from the Lord. And I think right here in these 12 verses, we have a seed again. Again, I think this is connected to that first interruption where God says, make me your priority. Make me your your first love. And here... We see Solomon builds his house, and again, I'm not going to go through all the details, but it actually consists of five houses and is ginormous compared to the temple. It would have dwarfed the temple. And perhaps not insignificantly, one of those five houses that make up the royal complex belongs to Pharaoh's daughter. You see that in verse 8? Solomon also made a house like this hall 
the hall of the throne, for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. Remember, Solomon's not to take to himself foreign wives. And yet, at chapter 3, we, we recognized he took to himself Pharaoh's daughter, put his trust in a foreign power in Egypt, all while he was worshiping at foreign places, at those high places. And then he got the listening heart, and he worshiped in the right place before the Ark of the Covenant. And then when his heart turns away, he's going to return to those high places. And what's going to turn his heart away? Well, those things that Deuteronomy 17 tells him not to do that he continues to do. You should read Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20 in particular, uh, each week as we work through these sections. It'll really help you. But Solomon really is told, hey, don't have many, don't take foreign wives for everybody, but as the king, don't take many wives. He's going to do that. He's taking a foreign wife. He's told, don't gather to yourself a bunch of horses because you'll return to Egypt in your heart. And you've got already, we saw, talking about it in Sunday school, 40,000 horses. And, and be careful not to amass a whole bunch of wealth to yourself. Well, we see a whole lot of wealth. And on the one hand, it's a sign of God's prospering him. But on the other hand, these are harbingers. Solomon's heart being turned away. His listening heart that was given to him becoming deaf to the voice of God. I think really you have in the promised land, remember they're settling, saved out of Egypt, we're going to settle in the promised land. Here is the palace of the one true God. And right next to the palace of the one true God is the house of Pharaoh's daughter. They left Egypt, but they brought Egypt with them. The people have come out of Egypt, but there's still Egypt in their heart. Solomon, I think at a minimum when we read this, has his attention divided. Last week I had some friends in town, and uh, Chelsea and I were cooking dinner one night. You, know, you guys are going, wait, you were cooking? I was, I know. It was one of those rare occasions, special night. Uh, and so we were trying to, to get ready to cook, and all of a sudden our, our nostrils were assaulted by that terrible burning scent that you get sometimes when you're cooking. And we're going, where is this coming from? Eventually, we discover that it's coming from the oven, but that doesn't make sense, right? Because we've simply preheated the oven. We haven't put anything in there yet. Nevertheless, when we opened the door, smoke billowed out, rolled over us, and filled up our house. What, what happened? You see, the previous night, we were making some good old-fashioned kale chips. I say we, but I mean her. Chelsea was. That's not my thing. If you're into kale chips, that's great. Um, but amidst all the hustle-bustle that was going on in my house, we had forgotten to take the kale chips out of the oven. And so well, what happens when you leave things in the oven and you preheat the oven is they get hot, and well, the, the kale chips went up in smoke. This isn't the first time something like this has happened. I mean, uh, one time we, we, her, we learned this from her mom. Somebody comes over unannounced. You guys can take this home with you. You just gather all the dirty dishes, everything up, and you shove them in the oven. Nobody looks in the oven. They're like, wow, their house is really clean. All hidden away in the oven. It's an illustration about sin in there somewhere. But the point here, the, the point here is that 
the, the, the kale chips went up in smoke. I know you guys are going, what is the point? They went up in smoke because our attention was divided. Because while we were paying attention to these other things, these important aspects of cooking, we had forgotten primary things, like making sure the oven is empty before you get it really hot. Solomon, it's not bad that he wants to build himself a house. It's not a bad thing. I think the insertion of it here is the author telling us Solomon's attention is divided. His heart, even though it's not turned away from the Lord yet, has a a rival to God in it. Friends, we must not live with our attention divided. The second that we get fat and happy, the second that we get comfortable and complacent and stop paying attention to our spiritual lives and stop pursuing God as our highest priority, we will begin to drift away from God. This is what happened to Solomon. He didn't enter into idolatry overnight. It happened slowly, little by little, drop by drop. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, and keep them there. I think the temptation is so easy when we're not paying attention that our eyes go from being on Christ and the cross and the kingdom of God and they slowly just come down until we're gazing at our own navels. So easy to take your eyes off of Christ and put them onto your mirror. I think this is what happened with Solomon. He becomes the center of his affection, slowly but surely, rather than God. Friends, stare at Jesus. Don't forget the priority of Christ amidst all the other things that you are doing, even good things. Solomon builds his house And it's completed. Then the author takes us to the last part of our literary tour. And he introduces us to the furniture and the furnishings of the temple. Look with me at verse 13. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram, not the king, even though he's from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Nephtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. and He was full of wisdom and understanding and skill. Sometimes wisdom in the Bible, oftentimes, it just means a skill. The skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all of his work. The description of Hiram calls us back to Exodus and to Uh, that making of the temple, it reminds us of Bezalel and Ohalib. How many of you were here when we did that in Exodus, just by way? Can somebody raise your hands if you were here when we went through Exodus? Not many of us, there's some of us, yeah. So you guys remember, the rest of us, you're out. There were two guys that were filled with the Holy Spirit for the skill of making the furniture in God's house. And so likewise, Hiram is filled with the skill to make a whole bunch of stuff. 
we see the first are two pillars. You see that in verse 15. Two pillars. They are 27 foot high, 18 feet around, and they are completed with two seven foot high capitals that sit on top of them. Those capitals are decorated with lattice work, pomegranates, and lily. The two pillars end up named Jachin, which means he will establish, and Boaz, meaning in him is strength. The pillars together convey God's promise to establish his kingdom and his people by his power. Hiram also makes what is called the sea. In the picture, it's that giant bowl-looking thing that rests on top of those 12 oxen. There's three on kind of four sides. I know it's a circle, but there's four sides. Uh, These oxen hold up the sea. They're pointed towards the four corners of the earth. Uh, This thing is 16 feet across, 8 feet deep, and if you were to walk around the outside of it, it would be 50 feet around. It held, what is it in verse 23? I like the way it says this. Uh, It held, how many baths? Does somebody see it? A whole bunch of baths is how the original, 2,000 baths, verse 26, which is roughly 10,500 gallons of water. He also makes... Ten stands or chariots. You see those in verse 27. They are six and a half feet long and wide, five foot tall, decorated with lions, oxen, wreaths, palm trees, and cherubim. And these chariots carry ten six foot wide bowls or basins, which are described in verse 38. And each of those bowls or basins holds about 240 gallons of water. Hiram also makes pots and shovels litany of things. Look with me at verse 45 of chapter 7. Now the pots, the shovels, the basins, all the vessels in the house of the Lord which Hiram made for King Solomon were of burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan the king cast them, in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarethan. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because there were so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. This is a little ridiculous. There's so much gold and silver and other precious things that there's no need to weigh the bronze. There's so much of it, Psalms like, it's not worth weighing it. God has really blessed his people. This wise king has brought blessing. Verse 48, So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side, five on the north, Before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and fire pans of pure gold, the sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. Thus, all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So ends our literary tour of God's house. And so the question is raised, why all these details? We have a ton of details, and it feels a little bit like drudgery to us to read, why are they there? You can't reconstruct the temple. There's, there's things that are missing. The thickness of the walls, for example. 
So these aren't building plans. Why are the details there? Why does the author delight to write them? And the reason is this. These details allowed all of God's people to take a tour of a house they would never step foot in. You understand, all this extravagance that is to proclaim the the glory of God, that is to inspire awe in the people, all of it, it's only going to be seen by very few people. Right? Only priests can go into the main hall. And only the high priest, and only once a year, gets to go into the throne room. Where those two cherubim sit atop the Ark of the Covenant. So, so why all the details? Doxology. To evoke praise and wonder in the people. They are to, in their mind's eye, by reading this passage, stand in the temple, stand in God's house, and marvel at gold on the floor and on the ceiling and on the walls and at the intricate artwork by way of the carvings. They're to get a sense of being in God's presence, a sense of being in Eden and out of sin and out of the world. They are to be awed by this place. All of it, the architecture and the artwork is there to draw the people into the praise and worship of God. The cherubim and the carvings and the gold, none of it is in violation to the second commandment. Second commandment says, make no graven images right. And I think sometimes it's misunderstood and misapplied. People say, see, no graven images, and that means that there's no place for artwork or things of beauty in places of worship. God's not violating the second commandment. The temple is a place of worship, and there certainly is artwork and things of beauty there. The purpose of which is to evoke praise. It's important that we understand the second commandment It says, don't make graven images for the purpose of worshiping those images. These things that are in the temple are there not so that the people would worship them, but so that they would cause the people to recognize just how great and glorious God is. The art and the architecture of the temple enable the people to see... These things are beautiful, but they testify to the greater beauty and glory of God. The same way as we look at nature. You go outside, you look at the mountains here, and you go, that's beautiful. What is it? That the beauty of nature is testifying to the beauty and glory of God. That's my point. Art and architecture communicate about God. I think it is unfortunate that in, um, over the years in the contemporary church, uh, we have sort of lost an appreciation for art and architecture and the power they have to lead us into the presence of God. Think of old church buildings. 
And even this one, right? You come in, the ceilings are higher than, than usual. You look around, we have one thing of stained glass. Got a steeple outside. When you go into to some of these old school cathedrals in, in Europe or larger churches up in, in Boston that have been there a while, and you go in and they are big inside. There are carvings and pictures and stained glass and you know, steeples there. Why? All of these things are to work together, sort of like the things in the temple were, to bring about a sense of God's grandeur and glory, of His transcendence. Love, you step into some of those big buildings and you can't help but feel small. The architecture is there to help you sense how big God is. And I'm not not telling you that church buildings are the temple. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Don't hear me say that. This isn't a temple. I am saying that buildings can make a difference and that it's important for Christians to be thoughtful about architecture and furnishings and art and how the environment helps to cultivate worship or quench it. Yes, plenty of churches and church plants meet in movie theaters and garages and everything in between, and that's good, and they should. I think you talk to any church planner, and they'll tell you the value of having their own building. Buildings can help evoke worship from God's people. And I don't want to make it sound like we need we, everybody, every church needs to have an extravagant building. Ours certainly isn't extravagant. I'm not saying we need to coat the walls in gold. Right? Human beings can become just as disenchanted with some of those majestic church buildings as they can with any other thing. No, no, I think what we should learn from the text is twofold. One, to think about the way that art and architecture can provoke us towards the worship of God. That God has invited all of us to worship Him with all five of our senses, with our whole being. That we are to be fully engaged in the worship of God. I was thinking about this a little bit this morning. It's like, do I really want to say that all five senses? And I started thinking about our worship service. And I go, yeah, we, we see each other. And Paul tells us there's a manifestation of the Spirit given to each one. We see each other. We, we sing to each other. So, so we hear. We hear God's Word proclaimed. We taste and touch and smell the Lord's Supper. God wants us to be engaged in the worship of Him. And the second thing I think that we ought to learn in terms of doxology from these details, is that we are never, ever to approach God casually. We are to come before the Lord joyfully, seriously, expectantly, as a family, but never are we to come flippantly as if God doesn't matter. I think sometimes we put such a premium on feeling comfortable and cozy at church, that we lose any sense 
of the seriousness of what we are doing here. We're to come before God and be seriously joyful. There should be a gravity and a gladness to our gathering. It's one reason for all of these details. Doxology, to evoke praise. The second reason for all of these details. The temple teaches us about doxology, and it also teaches us about God. Think about it. We've got doxology and theology. The temple is about God being present and in relationship with His people. It's the new garden of Eden. Consider the details. Pomegranates, palm trees, vegetables, and lilies all represent the garden. Eden was a well-watered place. The temple was full of water. The temple was on a mountain, as was Eden. The cherubim guard the inner room as they guarded the return route to Eden with a flaming sword when our first parents were cast out. Temple is how God's people, through a priest, can enter into God's immediate presence, into peace with God. And only when the priest enters, it's always by way of blood, only after he's been cleansed by water. The temple also calls to mind the Exodus. There are chariots of water outside so that when anyone would approach this structure, have to replay in their minds the death of the firstborn, slaughter of lambs, blood on doorposts, the parting of the Red Sea, and the presence of God at Sinai. It's almost an acting out of Exodus. The temple speaks of cleansing and of victory. Reminding the people they've been saved from slavery through water and blood and into the promised land. Not only that, the temple anticipates the exodus of God's people. We are saved out of slavery to sin through the blood of Christ. And our salvation is pictured in our passing through the waters of baptism. Indeed, the temple is a shadow of Jesus, who according to John 1.14, took on flesh and dwelt among us. If you translate that literally, it's he took on flesh and tabernacled or templed among us. Jesus is the temple of God. He's the meeting place. He's the place where God and man come and have peace with one another. Jesus brings us into the presence of God. The temple anticipates Jesus, and, and watch this, the temple also anticipates us. Church, did you hear the scripture reading from Ephesians this morning? Have you read 1 Peter? You, brother, you, sister, together with all the rest of us, are living stones being built together as God's spiritual house, a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we are the body of Christ. We are God's house. 
And God's house speaks about God's glory. Just as the temple and the gold within testified to the glory and greatness of God, so too are we to testify by our holy living and our faithful proclamation of the gospel the glory and greatness of God. Together, we, church, are to be a display of God's glory to all nations so that all people might come and worship our good and mighty King. We we read this passage in Kings. We look to the cross. We recognize what God has done in us. He's made us living stones. Friends, star in your role of faithfully proclaiming the gospel. Star in your role of testifying to the greatness of God. Uh, Read a chapter like this and stand in awe of God's wisdom, of His greatness, of His grandeur, of His transcendence, of His eminence, of His glory. This great God is wanted to be in relationship with these weak people. Get your mind around that. There's no greater love. And there is no greater God. Stand in awe. Would you stand and sing with me? going to sing a chorus, and if you don't know it, I'll end up singing by myself, and that's okay. We're just going to sing it through twice. Our God is an awesome God. Just the chorus. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. 